Greetings, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Eldritch Grimoire. Today's episode, Chapter 4, concerns Darth Vader's personification of an elementary idea, a galactic avatar of death, the Dragon of Chaos, who, akin to all true Sith, instantiates the Western Ego's pursuit of excellence without any ethical responsibility. A useful mythological framework for understanding Darth Vader's arc is that of the right and left-hand paths, succinctly articulated by Joseph Campbell. Now there are two kinds of mythology. There's the, what is called the right-hand path, the mythology of the village compound that keeps you fixed in the context of your world, and then you move out. You move out into a realm of danger. This is known as the left-hand path. You follow the way of your own bliss. Here you will live a life of danger, creativity, perhaps not a respected life, but certainly an interesting one. And then there is what I would call the general mythology of the hero journey, the night sea journey, the hero quest, where the individual is going to bring forth in his life something that was never beheld before, namely the fulfillment in time and space of his own potentialities, which are peculiar to him. As detailed in the introduction, in so-called Eastern spirituality, the heroic task of the individual, of the ego, is to submit to and uphold all material and cosmic manifestations of Dharma, i.e. to follow the right-hand path. The pre- or non-Christian Western ego, however, follows the left-hand path. That is, the Western ego, the Western hero, disrupts Dharmic boundaries to delve into the deep, the land of dreams and madness, to confront the absolute, become changed by it in some fundamental way, and then return to material reality as both hero and monster, a being who can accomplish wonders, but is no longer suited to the society whose boundaries he or she has violated in realizing his or her heroic individual potentiality. We can conceive the absolute, or in Star Wars, the cosmic force, as the eternal serpent, the Ouroboros. This serpent, exists in a constant state of endless creation and destruction that can be viewed with equal validity as a dance or conflict between light and dark. And it is this engagement, however perceived, the eternal return, which structures all individual and collective realities, the incalculable cycles it comprises. The Western perspective, then, is one of conflict which drives the inevitable tragedy of all triumphs of the individual will. No matter how glorious or powerful, heroes and their egos always die, subsumed within the absolute, consumed by the dragon of chaos, which they may momentarily overcome, but can never conquer. In short, Western heroes are heroic because they exhibit cosmic valor, that is, these heroes confront their fate with their destiny, but can never alter the former. Hence, they are ultimately devoured by the abyss, by Kali, master of time, death, and change, by the dark side of the force. Accordingly, it is not the death of Shmi, 
or his subsequent massacre of the Sand People that leads Anakin Skywalker to become Darth Vader. While these events respectively precipitate and constitute his fall to the dark side, it is Anakin's much earlier encounter with the Dead Star as a young Padawan, which engenders the fear within him that eventually leads to his own annihilation and recreation as Vader. Nowhere has this fear been detailed more powerfully than in Matthew Stover's tremendous novelization of Revenge of the Sith, specifically in its introduction to Anakin Skywalker, which is worth reviewing in full. This is Anakin Skywalker, the most powerful Jedi of his generation, perhaps of any generation, the fastest, the strongest, an unbeatable pilot, an unstoppable warrior. On the ground, in the air, or sea, or space, there is no one even close. He has not just power, not just skill, but dash. That rare, invaluable combination of boldness and grace. He is the best there is at what he does, the best there has ever been, and he knows it. Hollownet features call him the hero with no fear, and why not? What should he be afraid of? Except... Fear lives inside him anyway, chewing away the firewalls around his heart. Anakin sometimes thinks of the dread that eats at his heart as a dragon. Children on Tatooine tell each other of the dragons that live inside the suns. Smaller cousins of the sun dragons are supposed to live inside the fusion furnaces that power everything from starships to pod racers. But Anakin's fear is another kind of dragon. A cold kind. A dead kind. Not nearly dead enough. Not long after he became Obi-Wan's Padawan, all those years ago, a minor mission had brought them to a dead system, one so immeasurably old that its star had long ago turned to a frigid dwarf of hyper-compacted trace metals, hovering a quantum fraction of a degree above absolute zero. Anakin couldn't even remember what the mission might have been, but he'd never forgotten that dead star. It had scared him. Stars can die? It is the way of the universe, which is another manner of saying that it is the will of the Force. Obi-Wan had told him, everything dies. In time, even stars burn out. This is why Jedi form no attachments. All things pass. To hold on to something or someone beyond its time is to set your selfish desires against the Force. That is a path of misery, Anakin. The Jedi do not walk it. That is the kind of fear that lives inside Anakin Skywalker, the dragon of that dead star. It is an ancient, cold, dead voice within his heart that whispers, All things die. In bright day, he can't hear it. Battle... A mission, even a report before the Jedi Council, can make him forget it's even there. But at night, at night, the walls he has built sometimes start to frost over. Sometimes, they start to crack. At night, the Dead Star Dragon sometimes sneaks through the cracks and crawls up into his brain and chews at the inside of his skull. The Dragon whispers of what Anakin has lost and what he will lose. The dragon reminds him every night of how he held his dying mother in his arms, of how she had spent her last strength to say, 
I knew you would come for me, Anakin. The dragon reminds him every night that someday he will lose Obi-Wan, he will lose Padme, or they will lose him. All things die, Anakin Skywalker. Even stars burn out. Furthermore, as observed in Chapter 2, Anakin's fundamental inner conflict between his violent desires and Jedi ethics, between his attraction to the Dragon of Chaos and his fear of the Dragon of Order, was kindled even before he first left Tatooine with Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. This crack in the Sun Dragon armor surrounding his heart allows the Dead Star Dragon and a shadow made flesh named Darsidious to greedily penetrate, seduce, and defile Anakin's soul thereafter whether through direct action or via indirect manipulation, that is, the slow corruption of the decadent Jedi Order and Republic. Whether this is a function of Anakin's individual destiny, which he can control, or his inevitable fate, which he cannot, is an open question. Nevertheless, the machinations of Sidious lead Anakin almost directly to his fated destruction, from the first instance in which he unleashes his rage on Tatooine to his initial encounter with his own mortality on Geonosis. That is, in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, Anakin is forcefully driven across the threshold between adolescence and adulthood, between teenage audacity and heroic valor, by forces beyond his control. While on his first mission for the Jedi Order without direct oversight, Anakin is tormented by dreams of Shmi's suffering. Since his dreams are never false, Anakin and Padme are driven to leave the safety and tranquility of Naboo, returning to Tatooine for the first time since Episode 1. To find his mother, Anakin confronts his former owner, only to arrive far too late to help her. Witnessing and feeling her die in his arms, his worst fear brought to fruition. The flames of Anakin's sun-dragon heart briefly burst through the cracks that first fractured his invincible confidence ten years earlier on the same planet. Briefly liberated from the restrictions he's placed on himself due to the debilitating fear of his instincts that the Jedi Council and Obi-Wan have instilled in him, Anakin frees his rage, incarnating the dark side, the Dragon of Chaos, in his wrath. With no time to address or process these issues in any meaningful way, Anakin and Padme are then compelled to rescue Obi-Wan on Geonosis. Anakin's passions are subsequently further inflamed when Padme professes her love for him something he sought since the first time he saw her, once again, on Tatooine ten years previously. Anakin's painful transition into adulthood is thus forcibly concluded when he confronts the Dragon of Chaos in a different form, that of the Dark Jedi and self-styled Sith, Count Dooku. Incapable of channeling his rage to his advantage against perhaps the greatest fencer of his day, Anakin confronts his death alone, in the dark, the red and blue glares of the lightsabers at play representing both his and Dooku's moral confusion. In short, as his adolescence and status as a Padawan come to an end, Anakin must repeatedly confront love and death, which for him are inextricably entwined with his fear, guilt, and rage. Like all Western heroes, his exhibition of cosmic valor amid the sacrifice of his arm is thus rewarded with a permanent alteration that renders him somewhat monstrous, a lifeless, mechanical appendage incapable of feeling the physical world, let alone communing with the Force. In this respect, the loss of Anakin's arm is a kind of sacrifice of himself to himself, 
It is a loss of humanity that can never be replaced, akin to his permanent loss of Shmi. And with her, the last vestiges of the hope-filled innocence that fueled his sun-dragon heart as a boy. In short, Anakin is consumed by his shadow, by his personal unconscious. And it is these shocks that have set up the slant, the posture, the, uh, the structuring attitude of the individual uh, to life. It's these that constitute the personal unconscious. The shocks that will have uh, upset and uh, transformed the life experience of one person will not be precisely the same as those that will have done so for another. And so the shadow is the order of what Jung calls the personal unconscious. Hence, having gazed into the abyss without blinking, Anakin's boyhood innocence is replaced with an undying rage that will ultimately bring balance to the Force, ensuring the fate of the Chosen One is fulfilled as he burns on a funeral pyre of his own making. Such sacrifices are fundamental to Western mythology at the highest levels. A clear example thereof occurs in stanzas 138 to 139 of the Norse Havamal, part of the Poetic Edda, the least Christianized surviving source of Scandinavian mythology. In these famous and often misinterpreted stanzas, Odin also sacrifices himself to himself. In a rite, he describes as follows. I know that I hung on that wind-rocked tree nine whole days and nights with a spear wounded and to Odin offered myself to myself. High on that tree of which no one knows from what root it springs. None refreshed me ever with loaf or horn. I peered right down into the deep. I took up the runes, shrieking I took them, and forthwith back I fell. Notably, as this and other myths in the Poetic Edda indicate, Odin is no less subject to Orlog, or fate, than any other being within the boundaries of Yggdrasil, the mythical world tree that structures the material cosmos. That is, Odin is fully cognizant that his fate is to fail in his defense of the cosmos against the forces of destruction during Ragnarok, to be devoured by Loki's progeny, the wolf Fenrir, even as the cosmos and everything within it are immolated by Surtur to give rise to a new cycle in the eternal return. Odin therefore constantly seeks new wisdom, new paths to power that can alter his weird, his destiny, through ascetic rites, as well as sacrifices of Midgard's mightiest heroes, and even his own body, to himself. Crucially, then, in these stanzas from the Havamal, Odin does not sacrifice himself for the benefit of humanity, or to somehow absolve the cosmos of evil. Rather, mirroring the code of the Sith, he simply aims to increase his own strength, his own power, to gain ultimate victory over death and the natural order by breaking his chains of fate. Like the Sith, Odin's only ethical obligation is thus increasing his own power, not for the benefit of humanity or the cosmos, but in a fruitless attempt to alter his unchangeable fate, his inevitable death, by manipulating his destiny. Critically, and an aspect often completely lost on scholars who superficially associate Odin's self-sacrifice on the world tree with Christ's martyrdom on the cross, Odin 
does not die. Instead, through this graphically violent and clearly shamanic rite and sacrifice, he is able to attain direct access to the deep where absolute consciousness resides, which mystics in the East obtain through their patient devotion to peace, compassion, and serenity. Furthermore, whereas these enlightened mystics in the East, Buddha foremost among them, blissfully encounter the abyss only to recognize that they are the deep and the deep is them, via their elimination of the illusion of duality and the suffering it entails, the willful surrender of their ego, Odin simply and selfishly appropriates the runes, tools for wielding the power of the transcendental absolute, of the eternal serpent, in material reality. Similar to the Sith, Odin's singular focus on his victory over his own fate, his own corporeal death, not only manifests as the greed that enables him to take these runes from the deep for the benefit of his own ego, but also causes him to shriek at the horrific realization that even his own godly existence is meaningless in the endless abyss of the deep. This horror even causes him to fall from the world tree, forever changed by his exhibition of cosmic valor in this encounter with the Dragon of Chaos. A similar motivation and outcome structure the story of Odin pulling out his own eye, typically his left eye, reflecting his chosen course on the left-hand path. In this case, also attested in the Poetic Edda, Odin sought wisdom or power from the well of Mimir, the same deep beneath the roots of the world tree mentioned in the Havamal, also called the well of Erd, or weird in Old English. Later sources suggest that Odin is compelled to tear out his eye in exchange for a single drink from this well of destiny, but the only primary source that discusses this, the Voluspa, simply states that Odin's eye is hidden deep in the wide-famed well of Mimir. In any case, since Odin thus tears out his own eye and places it in the well of Weird, in the deep, he thereby physically, not spiritually, eliminates the duality between his material body and the transcendental absolute. As discussed in chapter 1, this artificial enlightenment is exactly what the dark side allows the true Sith to accomplish with regard to the Force. Therefore, just as Odin's loss of his eye presages his total sacrifice of both himself and others to himself to draw more strength from the abyss to overcome fate, so does Anakin's loss of his own arm foreshadow his fated sacrifice of the Jedi, Padme, and ultimately himself to Darth Vader. Additionally, as discussed in Chapter 2, Anakin's initial engagements with the Force are mitigated by machines, pod racers, and later starfighters which become extensions of his consciousness through his instinctual grasp of and power over the living force. This is why Anakin Skywalker is perhaps the greatest pilot in the galaxy. Fittingly, then, Anakin's artificial arm ultimately becomes a different kind of extension of his living force, a lifeless means by which, driven by the dead star dragon, he wields the dark side at various times throughout the animated Clone Wars series and, finally, Force chokes Padme, leading to her death and the birth of the new Tandava, the new dance of Shiva, mentioned in the previous chapter. In addition, as Chapter 2 notes, Darth Vader's full construction is therefore only completed once the immolated, rage-filled remains of Anakin's horrific fate as the Chosen One become fully and permanently devoured by the dark side, 
facilitating his final transformation into the Mortis Ex Machina, death from a machine, Darth Vader. Within his carapace built of dead machines of the Dead Star Dragon, Vader's ego burns forever in the fire of Anakin's lifeless Sun Dragon heart. This abomination, this source of inevitable slaughter, seemingly without parallel in a galaxy without the Jedi Order, functions as a singular harbinger of death wherever he appears, often even in Imperial contexts. In this respect, Darth Vader is also similar to Odin. Akin to Vader's ceaseless rage and, from the Jedi perspective, irrational scorn for anything other than his own power, Odin's name literally means the Mad One, illustrating both his singular madness and fury. To supplement his own power and sustain his struggle against his fate, Odin famously chooses the slain on the battlefield, or those killed in other forms of violent death. There are no benign interactions with this deity. Odin, sometimes also referred to as Bolverker, or evildoer, often breaks deals with or outright murders the heroes he has chosen to spend their afterlives in Valhalla to ensure they must serve in his doomed apocalyptic army. In short, Odin is far removed from the Allfather, an erroneous term that likely resulted from a transcription error a thousand years ago, as Jackson Crawford helpfully elaborates in a video I've linked in this episode's description. Rather, Odin is the god of war and death, a manifestation of the transcendental dragon of chaos, whose appearance always entails doom, and who was worshipped with fear and respect far more than he ever was with adoration and love. Similarly, Vader's helmet, an amalgamation of the iconic samurai helmet and half-mask with the German Stahlhelm, or Stormtrooper helmet, most associated with the Nazis, is an obvious visage of war and death. It is arguably this obvious representation of the unavoidable tragedy of every life, i.e. its end in death, which ensures Vader's mythological function as both Grim Reaper and an embodiment of technological abomination and Western heroism. This manifestation of the Western ego, of the pursuit of individual excellence without ethical restriction, worshipped as Odin for thousands of years and illustrated in Vader and the Sith for nearly five decades, is, therefore, an elementary idea. It represents an impulse within the collective unconscious that we all share, which explains both Odin's millennia-old worship and Vader's instant cult status in modern pop culture. Specifically, in Vader, we observe a being who personifies, even basks in, his own hell, ceaselessly confronting the ultimate tragedy of his life and refusing to submit to it, thereby embodying cosmic valor, the elementary struggle of our own ego against the inevitability of its own demise in the jaws of the Dragon of Chaos, Mortis Ex Machina. Or, as Joseph Campbell put it, Hell is symbolic of the state of a soul that doesn't open to the spiritual but remains stuck with the material aspect, with the foreground, you might say, of the experience. And all you have to do to, uh, to transform your hell into a paradise is to turn your fall into a voluntary act. Um, say yay to it, this is my intention, to be this mess that I am. <laughs> and, uh, and you'll find that you're an angel. Christy must mean 
That's to say, say yes to your crucifixion. Make it what you came for. St. Augustine says, Jesus went to the Christ, went to the cross as a bridegroom to his bride. That's the way we should come into life, which is a crucifixion. Joyful participation in the sorrows and everything. This concludes chapter four of the Eldritch Grimoire. Good journey, my friends.